When I started actually practicing non-monogamy, it opened up a lot of triggers for me. As someone who has complex PTSD, it kind of brought all of my relational trauma right up to the surface in a way that kind of knocked me out, like screwed up my sleep schedule, interfered with me working, like really was debilitating. And it was this very confusing experience because everything that I was learning about non-monogamy like resonated with me deeply. I felt like I'd found who I really am and was like, oh, okay, now I have a word for this thing that I am at my core. Like I'm coming to understand I am polyamorous. This is me, holy shit. I can't believe I've been not exploring this my entire life. But then actually in putting it into practice was having the experience in my body of like utter panic and dysregulation. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're going to be getting into topics that are especially important for people who are new to non-monogamy, or if you know someone who's new to it, maybe you're so old hat that you've forgotten what that was like. But if you're opening a relationship or just getting into this for the first time, a lot of really intense emotions can come up. And those can sometimes be ignored or not really given as much attention as they could be from the larger polyamorous community who's kind of figured some of that out already. And to do that, we are joined by Irene Morning to talk about some topics from her book, The Polyamory Paradox. Irene Morning is a somatic pleasure coach, intimacy educator, polyamorous human, and author of the best-selling book, The Polyamory Paradox, Finding Your Confidence in Consensual Non-Monogamy. Through her coaching, workshops, writing, and in-person sex-positive events, she guides others in creating relationships that fulfill their unique needs and desires. Both her work and personal life revolve around the belief that centering our own pleasure is not only healing on an individual level, but also in service of interdependence and collective well-being. Irene, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, we're really sad that Dedeker couldn't join us because I think the two of you have a lot of overlap in terms of the work that you do. She also does somatic coaching as well. So I'm curious because hers, I think, focuses less in the pleasure aspect. Can you talk a little bit about what it is that you do and what somatic experiencing and what somatic coaching means to you? Yeah, totally. I So I think the place that feels important for me to start with that is just in clarifying my background as far as like training and credentials here. I have about a a decade of operating in the wellness industry and doing mostly body-based, yoga-based stuff. I have a master's degree in yoga therapy. And when I talk about somatic coaching, I mean kind of adapting everything from that background, primarily in yoga, and fusing it with my other professional background, which is in sexual health counseling, and bringing those together. So I'm actually not trained in somatic experiencing, which is a specific Mm. modality. 
when I'm talking about somatic coaching, particularly somatic pleasure coaching, I'm talking about how are we getting into the body in terms of postures, breath work, guided meditation, self-awareness as we're journaling, to be pleasure-oriented and to work on whatever it is that we're working on through the lens of pleasure. Because I feel really strongly, especially as we're approaching relationship stuff and sexuality stuff, that centering our pleasure is the only way to really feel whole in it. Because when we're approaching healing work, people are really coming from a place of pain in some capacity, right? Understanding that pleasure gets to be a resource for that and pleasure is actually essential for balancing that out and being able to move forward from the pain is really, really important to my body of work. You touch on this a bit in the book, but when I heard the word pleasure, my head did immediately go to sex. And I thought, okay, this is going to be a book more about sex than certainly our book is. And while you do touch on sex some, you talk about pleasure as being sort of a a whole body thing that isn't just about sex and can, as you said, be used to sort of help facilitate healing. Can you talk a little bit about that and why write a book with pleasure being so intrinsically like a part of what it is the book is about? The framework that I put forward in the book, the framework that I use with all my clients, I, I call it holistic pleasure, but it's really just to say that we as humans, everything that we experience can kind of be boiled down to, I like this or I don't like this. And I mean, obviously that's a very reductionist framing, but most of how our body is set up is to give us that yes or no. If this is a no for me, I want to move away from it right? Like it doesn't feel good for me. It's probably not serving me on a biological basis. And if it feels good to me, I'm going to lean into it and try to get more of it. And so much of how our culture is set up is to actually disconnect us from listening to those body signals. Mm -hmm. And so for most of us, as we're coming into our adult selves and realizing that we're unhappy with some aspect of our life, or we want to be working on something to feel more fulfilled, to feel more connected, to feel more in tune with ourselves and our relationships, our work, whatever it may be, learning to reclaim our own sense of pleasure can be really, really directive in actually getting to that sense of fulfillment. I I like to present to people, you know, we obviously am biased doing somatic work, but we always have a body. The body is the vessel through which we experience everything. And so if we're cutting ourselves off from it in all these ways and learning to ignore it and suppress its signals in all these ways, we're not actually experiencing ourselves to the fullest. And because we live in this society that has so closely paired the concept of pleasure with sex and we're such a sex negative culture, in order for us to move through some of that, we have to reclaim our sense of pleasure. Yeah, I think... It, it reminds me of some conversations we've had on the show before about that idea of like, what does pleasure mean? Because yeah, we do tend to think of it only as being about sex. And there was a, an exercise at one point in the book where you talk about these four particular categories, I guess, of, of <laughs> pleasure. You have, I wrote this down here in my notes, the physical. So sex would fit in that category as well as other things, right? Like Uh, massage or working out or cuddling or eating good food or something like that. And then you have 
kind of mental, which might be learning something or really engaging kind of intellectually on a topic. Then you have spiritual or energetic, which could be something like meditation or listening to music or doing art or something that's fulfilling in that way. And then you also have relational, which I thought was was interesting to add that category. It felt a little bit different from the others, but relational being that feeling of connecting with someone, which could also be cuddling or sex or things. There can be a lot of overlap between these, right? For you, that could also be spiritual. Like, so you <laughs> could have something that fits in multiple categories. But I did, I liked personally going through that exercise to think about, yeah, what are some things that I find pleasure from that I don't immediately associate with the word pleasure? And I think, you know, something like learning or even listening to music is not something that would usually come to mind right away. But those were things that made it onto my list. And so that was an interesting exercise. I'm, I'm curious for you, when in working with your clients and with yourself, what are some things that really surprise people or that they can get out of making that type of a list? I mean, there's two things that, that kind of immediately come to mind for me. One is the clients that come to me wanting to work on things related to sex. We always start with that sort of inventory of like, we're not just going to dive into what's happening in your sex life. We're going to look at, are you engaging your sense of pleasure in other areas of your life? Because if not, that's probably creating even more pressure on your sexual pleasure. And usually when we go through that exercise, people will figure out kind of one realm or maybe two of them or somewhere in that sort of chart that they wind up making. They'll kind of have an aha moment of like, oh, here's this place where I'm actually really not getting this nourishment or I'm not even uh, thinking about pleasure in this part of my life. And nurturing that, focusing on that for a little while often helps to take some of the pressure off whatever they're feeling in terms of sex and relationship pleasure. So that's one. And then I think the other is helping people understand that when we're talking about pleasure in that way, small is actually really best. Because I find the other thing that comes up for people around the concept of pleasure, again, particularly sexual pleasure, is, you know, that people need to be having orgasms, women or vulva body people need to be having orgasms from penetration or that sexual pleasure has to be this like big explosive like pornographic expression that they just have never been able to tap into there's a there's a lot of like internalized bigness around sexual pleasure and helping people understand that in relation to that starting really small and tuning in to the, actually the smallest embodiments or the smallest expressions of pleasure is what will help you grow it with more ease and and actually fast not like we're trying to go bigger and faster that's actually exactly the opposite of what i'm saying but paradoxically when you tune into the really small experiences of it that is what grows it more easily more quickly and and that winds up being true in all the other realms as well yeah, there was a section in the book a little bit later on where you were talking about blockages in pleasure. And you used an example of clients of yours that were having, you know, triggering feelings come up after their partner was coming home from a date and they were having a really challenging time with it. 
and you went through the exercise with them and it basically the conclusion was that they found a blockage in pleasure or a blockage in a different part of their life like their work life and that once they untangled that they were able to not have as much challenge and distress over their partner having a fun time with somebody else outside the home and that was really interesting to me because we so often will have issues with something that our partner's doing, but it really may not be about them. And I'm curious for you, like, how do you tell the difference? How are you able to parse out, okay, I'm I'm having an experience of something that's difficult with my partner, but it's not about them. It's about me and this other avenue of my life. Because to me, so often we're just going to go uh, immediately to blaming our partner and not looking inward and and questioning those other things that might be happening. So how would you tell someone to like figure out the difference there? I'm I'm not sure that we always can discern. And that might actually be kind of a lofty aspiration to always be able to discern. And I think there's a really important part of being in relationship in terms of accepting that sometimes we're not going to be able to parse that out and sometimes we are going to be projecting and sometimes that's just going to be complicated and messy. And I I say that because I don't want to set up unrealistic expectations for people that like, here's the tool that will always get you to the crux of it. Sure. But one of the things that I say to my clients often is like when we're in an uncomfortable place with a partner, we want to be looking at both of those things, right? Like, is there a request that I need to make of this partner that will help appease the tension or the conflict? Like, is there some need from this relationship that isn't getting met that I actually just need to advocate for differently? But then also, what's the piece in terms of my own history and my own feelings here? Like, can I look at my own experience and do some assessment? The concept that was coming up for me as you were speaking about that was doing that pleasure realms inventory and actually looking at how am I accessing pleasure in each of these four categories at this particular moment to see where maybe I'm not getting what I need in my own life and see if that might be bringing up old feelings from another chapter of my life or another relationship. And if nothing comes up in that inventory, then nothing comes up, but sometimes it does. And and so for me, it's always kind of the both and. Like, what am I looking at in myself? And also, what am I looking at in the relationship? Yeah, I, I like that idea of kind of where you started that is that you may never know for sure, or you might not, or maybe you do figure it out in this one moment, but that doesn't mean in the next moment you'll also know. I think mm-hmm. that's, in general, just a good thing for all of us to keep in mind is that I think when people are doing relationships, which you know, involves a lot of feelings, intentionally so, right? Relationships have a lot of feelings involved, is that because that's scary and because that kind of introspection can be hard and we don't see it modeled a lot, right? Instead, what we get is people posting some kind of relationship advice on social media that's a very black and white, do this and you're happy, do this and you're not. And it Mm -hmm. takes all different forms, right? From the kind of more pickup artisty world or like a very, you know, woo-woo spiritual tantra kind of way of approaching it and everything in between, right? There's this whole realm, but where we all want these easy, oh, if I just do this or if I always follow this, then I'll always do it right. 
And I, I just think it's so important to take a moment to sit with that and remind everyone that's that's not how it works. And that part of this is learning to be better at realizing that it's always an exploration. And that honestly, if it wasn't, we would all lose interest in relationships immediately anyway. If it really was just like follow these rules and you do it, we'd all be like, yeah, relationships are boring. I'll move on to something <laughs> else. Yeah. I, I mean, also the thing that comes up for me as you're saying that is kind of thinking about people's intentions as they're getting into non-monogamy and as they're approaching a, the transition from monogamy culture to trying to participate in non-monogamy, whatever that means for them. I feel like I've been having a lot of conversations lately of people curious about it. And this is something that I see, like, I think as non-monogamy is becoming increasingly mainstream, not that it's mainstream, but, you know, gaining popularity, gaining visibility, mm -hmm. gaining resources, importantly, a lot of people have curiosity about it and want to start dipping a toe in it or think it sounds appealing for X, Y, and Z reasons. And... I'm watching people get really kind of fixated on figuring it out before they're in it fully, mm -hmm. like thinking that they mm -hmm. can figure out what structure would suit them best, which I think is an important exercise, right? Like I want people to be having that thought process and you really don't know until you're putting it into practice. Sure. And so yeah. understanding like not what are the tools that I need to get it right, but what are the tools that I need to keep evolving because I'm going to keep evolving no matter what the thing is in front of me. Yeah. I mean, I think it'd be great if people kept that in mind for all types of relationships too, <laughs> not just non-monogamy, right? That we have this idea in monogamy as well that, oh, if I just do it the right way or find the right person, then nothing's a struggle, everything's easy. And that's also not how that goes, right? We're just exactly less likely to blame it on monogamy because it just seems like that's the water we're swimming in, so we don't even see it. Um, but yeah, that I remember years ago, gosh, where was this? I can't remember if I read this someone or someone told this to me or what it was, but uh, you know, the story of this woman who had been married for 50 years and someone, you know, younger was asking her, How how's that been? What's that been like being married to the same man for 50 years? And she was like, oh, I haven't been. I feel like I've been married to at least 10 different men. I mean, they were all the <laughs> same body and they all had the same name and they were the same person, but he's a different person at different points in our 50 years. And like, he's continued to change and so have I. And that's, so it's kind of, we, we have this idea that, oh, you find this one thing, it stays static. And that's just not how it works. Mm -hmm. Which honestly brings me back to the focus for me on pleasure, which really for me is a focus on embodiment and understanding how to stay in the body as the body changes to keep attuning to what feels good to me in this chapter of my life or today versus tomorrow and letting it be what it is in each present moment, again, as we evolve, because none of it stays the same. So this is something that you didn't really get into in this book, but I was curious to hear your thoughts about. So when we talk about pleasure, it's kind of related to a topic. I was actually just listening to an episode of the Secular Buddhism podcast where he was talking about kindness to yourself and mm -hmm. talking about the difference between kindness and niceness. And, you know, that's that's the distinction he made where being nice is kind of that like, 
avoiding anything that's difficult or just, you know, eating ice cream because it feels good or self-care to get away from the bad feelings. And that, yeah, that's nice. I mean, it's right there in the word, but that that isn't ultimately the best kindness we can do for ourselves. And so when it comes to pleasure, I feel like there's that same concept, right? Of how do you distinguish between what's just seeking pleasure all the time versus what's, I don't know how to describe it, kind of a Mm -hmm. more holistic, you know, more kind type of pleasure for yourself or more long lasting or or however you want to describe that. You'd you'd probably do a better job than I would. Well, I I mean, if I can take a stab at kind of synthesizing that, the word that that kind of comes forward for me as you're asking that is fulfillment. And that feels like an important differentiator for me around what I would maybe call holistic pleasure versus straight up hedonism. And like, Mm. I'm a fan of hedonism. I can get down with hedonism, not bashing hedonism. It's not the framework from which I coach because we can burn out, you know, like it's not sustainable Mm. for most of us, for some people. Cool. But I think part of what I'm getting at in those four realms and asking people to look at them all together is if we're just following the thing that feels good in one of those realms, like if I'm just leaning on a body-based pleasure that is actually somewhat fleeting and I'm not tending to what is mentally or emotionally or relationally or spiritually also giving me pleasure, I probably won't actually be able to stick with that for very long. It probably won't serve me for very long. There's something about looking, I mean, and also I should say for you know, the therapists out there listening or anyone who who knows this model, this model of pleasure is actually kind of adapted from a biopsychosocial approach to to humans and healing, which says like we need all of these different layers of ourselves to be met and supported in order for us to be our fullest self. And it's kind of just taking pleasure and applying that to, okay, we have different parts of being human. We have different aspects of being human. How do we make sure that they're all working together? That for me is the distinction between the kind of fleeting, I guess the the parallel for your example would be like the nice pleasure of just kind of like what feels good versus the deeply fulfilling pleasure that helps me actually really be connected to myself and others and living a robust life for an extended period of time. I just wanted to explore that a little because it it was (laughs) something that I'm thinking about a lot of that getting to know ourselves is always this challenge, this kind of push-pull, like you mentioned earlier, of we don't have a foolproof way to always know where a feeling's coming from or where a discomfort is coming from. To just, I guess, emphasize that idea that we're always exploring it and that it's Mm -hmm. not even quite so simple as just, uh, what feels good right now? Yeah, go do that. And that's, that's it. Yeah, I, I think the other thing that feels important to mention on that is that I don't think of pleasure in terms of avoiding what's uncomfortable or challenging or even painful for us. I like to talk about it as resourcing for facing those things. So if we recognize that we're using pleasure to just as like certain forms of escapism, mm-hmm. that's not really what I'm after here. It's more like if I'm in a really challenging period of my life, Like, for example, I had two family members die this year, and it's been really hard in a lot of ways. There's been a lot of grief and a lot of stuff to kind of sort through psychologically. And in facing that, it means that I've been more 
conscientious and more specific about how am I going to support myself by making sure to also access pleasure while I'm grieving. Mm. It's not like, let me just get out of this. Yeah, I like that distinction a lot, that it's not just about avoiding any discomfort, but about, yeah, how how do we approach those things? Yeah, I like that distinction a lot. Yeah, and I, I talk about that some in the book, too, in terms of like facing conflict with partners. It's like, mm. how can you actually use pleasure? And and when I'm talking about pleasure in, in that realm, it's really meant, like when I talk about it as a resource, it's really meant in terms of self-regulation or co-regulation. Like, how do we use pleasure to regulate so that we can be in the parts of our nervous system where we can communicate effectively. Yeah, we just had an episode about spiritual bypassing. And I think it is tricky because so often we want to use things in our life that really are there to deepen and uh, motivate us and make our lives better, but sometimes they can be used as a crutch. And you essentially just said that, that sometimes our pleasure, we can tap into things because we want to escape the challenges that are happening in our life. And I think it is that tricky thing of making sure that we can tap into those things when we need them and that they can help enrich our life, but not that they're there only to make us turn away from the challenges that we have to face in order to kind of evolve and and get better in our life. So. Yeah, I appreciate that that you talk about that and and the distinction a bit there. You know, I think you actually just like in this moment just gave me an aha. Oh, <laughs> about about my own work. Thank you. <laughs> oh, good, <laughs> excellent. Glad to be of service. I so so often when I'm kind of explaining this framework to people, I'll, I'll set it up as like you know, for example, dancing might check off all four categories for you. Right. You might be doing a a pleasure inventory and put dancing under physical pleasure, under mental pleasure, relational pleasure and spiritual pleasure. What I have not framed yet that I think I'm going to dig into a little bit more is it may actually be a good way to check if something is in support of you in a holistic way to say like, okay, I'm tapping into this as physical pleasure in this moment does it also support my pleasure in the other four realms, right? Because like with spiritual bypassing, if we're doing something that gives us pleasure, like let's say I'm, I don't know, eating ice cream to feel good, but that's not actually going to support my physical pleasure, right? Like it's going to give me a stomach ache, but I'm doing it because it gives me emotional pleasure, to avoid something else or to be a placeholder for something else. I'm regretting this example a little bit because I actually really don't feel that way about ice cream. But <laughs> <laughs> but it may actually be helpful to put that in the category that you're trying, that y- you know you're using it for in the moment and then say, does this serve my other realms of pleasure or am I actually using it to the detriment of a different realm of pleasure? Like a checks and balances system. Yeah, that's a, an interesting distinction. Yeah, that's a fun way to think about it. Yeah, because I think definitely you can have certain pleasures that really do only check one box potentially, and that's okay. But I agree if it's at the detriment of other things, then that's where maybe the issue comes into play. And that's where mm-hmm. maybe it's not going to be serving you in the way that you ultimately want it to. Awesome. So we want to get into a little bit about the book itself. Why is it called The Polyamory Paradox? As well as 
some of the things that we found a little bit challenging in this book. But first, we're going to take a quick break to talk about how you can support this show if you appreciate this content and want this to continue being available to everyone out there in the world for free every week. Take a moment, listen to our sponsors. If any of them seem interesting to you, go check them out. It does directly support our show. And either way, we will see you on the other side. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. For a long time now, we've been fans of adamandeve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their sites specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy, or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. So I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about the book as a whole. So the book is called The Polyamory Paradox. So I guess the first question is, you know, what made you decide to write this book and who is it for? And then I want to get into the paradox itself. But but starting out, like what, what made you decide to write this and who's the intended audience? Who who would help? And we have some thoughts about who we think this would help as well. But we're curious to hear from you first. Well, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts. I decided to write this book because when I started actually practicing non-monogamy, it opened up a lot of triggers for me. As someone who has complex PTSD, it kind of brought all of my relational trauma right up to the surface in a way that kind of knocked me out, like screwed up my sleep schedule, interfered with me working, like really was debilitating. And it was this very confusing experience because everything that I was learning about non-monogamy like resonated with me deeply. I felt like I'd found who I really am and was like, oh, okay, now I have a word for this thing that I am at my core. Like I'm coming to understand I am polyamorous. This is me. Holy shit. I can't believe I've been not exploring this my entire life. But then actually in putting it into practice was having the experience in my body of like utter panic and dysregulation. And most of the resources that I was looking to at that point, this was 
years ago now, and we didn't have nearly as much stuff out there that's actually like helpful in the non-monogamy helping world. And I was getting a, a, my shame was essentially like exacerbated by a lot of the resources that I was looking to. I wasn't finding stuff that was talking about how intense that experience in the body was. I felt like more of the messaging I was encountering was kind of like, figure out what your insecurities are and like handle your jealousy. It's a little more theoretical. Yeah, it, it didn't feel practical for like how intense the experience was. And it didn't make me feel seen in terms of having that type of trauma. And also, I mean, I, I think the therapy world is getting a little bit better with this, but I was really struggling to find a therapist who was competent when it came to non-monogamy. I kept running into the question, well, how would this be different if you were monogamous? And I was kind of like, wow, that question's not working mm -hmm. for me. And, and that took me into focusing on this. Once I figured out a lot of it for myself and talked about it a lot more openly, you know, obviously that changed, that influenced my work and brought a lot more people to me who were going through the same thing. And the book was really meant to be the resource that I wish I'd had at that point that, you know, that a lot of my clients were kind of wishing that they had to help with some really practical stuff of like, how do we think about moving through this transition, right? Shifting from monogamy to non-monogamy when it brings up some really, really, really hard stuff in our bodies. Yeah, that deprogramming aspect or kind of the the unlearning and the lack of role models and things that we have yeah all all makes it challenging and so so yeah to go to my impressions reading it you know who i think this book is best for it definitely feels like because it's it's a lot based on your own story of coming to this and so i would say it it's great if you want a book that really acknowledges those struggles and that feeling of panic and stuff when you're new to it and particularly for people opening up previous relationships, that mm -hmm. that seems to be a through line through a lot of it. Like a lot of it's based around a lot of focus on this one sort of primary couple that's that's opening up and exploring this and the kind of ruptures and challenges and things that can come up through that process, as well as, I guess, just like being someone who's who's new to it and going through that unlearning kind of process. It was interesting so Emily and I were discussing, you know, before you got on the call, our own experiences of like, which parts of this do we relate to and which don't we? And there were some sections in there. Specifically, there's one where you talk about this feeling of when one person goes off on a date and maybe spends the night with someone else and then they come back home. So again, we're assuming these people live together and that they have a home together. But coming back home, that there's some repair that's going to be needed between those people. And it's interesting because when I read that, I was like, no, I disagree completely because that's not not even at all my experience of my relationship right now. <laughs> but my relationship right now with Dedeker is one that we're almost to our 10 year anniversary and that we've been polyamorous literally that whole time. Right. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're not in that situation. We're not who this is really written for, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then Emily and I talked about when we first opened up. No, yeah, exactly. we could definitely identify with that feeling of, Oh God, you know, this is, this is a, an uncomfortable feeling that we need to somehow fix. And I'd say, ironically, sometimes our efforts to fix and do that repair can actually cause some of the other problems. Um, totally. but I feel like 
thinking back through our experiences being like, yeah, this book is kind of written for that. Oh my God, I'm just starting <laughs> this and have no idea what's going on. I'm freaking out. No one seems to understand. So I think that's that was my impression of it. Yeah, it's definitely meant for that sort of transition period of like yeah. trying to open up, trying to explore. And I'll say it's it's also in my opinion, fairly basic in what it's putting forward as far as embodiment stuff and explaining like nervous system dynamics and regulation practices and all of that kind of stuff. It was really meant to be a book that took like beginning non-monogamy and beginning to understand somatics and put them together so that Mm -hmm. making that transition could be supported by an understanding of somatics. It's not I wasn't trying to do like any advanced level stuff there, but just to kind of help people in like making that very particular shift in their lives. And and not just from that intellectual place of like, oh, I like this idea. So like, here it is. Yeah, I, I did try to to tell Jace, we have been in this spot before. We're just not there <laughs> now. But if you do recall at the beginning, there was a lot of challenge, you know, when he came back from a date and I was having a lot of feelings and then we would need to at least talk about what was coming up and and collaborate on the best ways to you know make ourselves and and me in the moment or or him at later times feel as good as we possibly can with those challenges that arose it's interesting just because I think that even though the book is sort of geared to that transitionary time a lot of these things can come up when we don't necessarily expect them to in other mm-hmm. relationships. We may have a primary partner, and that's definitely not the case for everybody. And even if you are a solo polyamorous person who's had a long-term relationship and then your partner just starts dating someone new, for instance, you may unexpectedly have a moment of like, whoa, I'm getting really triggered by something even though I haven't felt that in years, but for whatever reason, this is bringing up these types of emotions that are really challenging for me. And so Mm -hmm. I I do think a lot of what you wrote can still be applied in various stages of relationship, even though I understand that it is geared sort of towards one specific group of people. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't touch on attachment styles at all in this book. I kind of felt like, well, if I'm being it's really frank about it, it's it kind of, yeah, I'm kind of like, yeah. we don't need one more book with one more person explaining attachment styles, you know, like Polysecure was enough for the whole poly world in that regard. Just go read a chapter from that. But that reminds me of like, we can have different attachment styles with different people and in different relationships, right? Like our attachment style is not this fixed thing. And similarly, when dynamics change in whatever the relationship landscape or ecosystem, it can bring up stuff that we didn't realize was in there. And a lot of kind of that that earlier expression that you're talking about with, between the two of you of, okay, this is bringing up feelings and we need to talk some of it through and then moving to a much, I'm going to call it a more secure place later on. Sure. Yeah. Part of the thing for me in that transition from monogamy to non is actually just learning what trust in non-monogamy is and learning a new type of trust in a romantic or sexual partner. Because if we're coming from monogamy culture, we don't have that model of, oh, I trust you in how you date other people. That's a very new, very particular type of trusting someone else. 
yeah, that you wouldn't really know until you do it. That you wouldn't really know. And that's some of what you're building in, you know, if if you're having fear or anxiety or feelings of abandonment when a partner is going out on a date with someone else, part of it is that you're learning how they date. You're learning mm-hmm. how they navigate relationships outside of yours. And humans really don't like unknown. So you sitting there not knowing that about someone that you feel so close to can be really scary in the beginning. Or when you see them dating someone completely new that like maybe you have questions about or there's some projection that you're not aware of. They remind you of someone from your past and you're not quite putting the pieces together. You know, like there's so many elements involved that can stir up stuff that that asks for our attention. You talk about this concept in the book a lot called the window of tolerance, and I really, really liked it. Can you explain to our listeners what that is? And maybe we can talk about it a little bit more. So the window of tolerance, I always forget who actually coined that term, but I'm sure it'll come right up if you Google it. But it is essentially to describe in our nervous system, right, which kind of dictates our entire experience of how our body's operating and how we perceive the world and how we interact with everything. In our nervous system, there's kind of a range of, I'll call it optimal functioning. And in that range of optimal functioning, we are able to digest food and feel relaxed and access the parts of our brain that give us logical thinking and communication and reason and creativity and like all of the the really beautiful connective things about being human. In short, that's our window of tolerance. And outside of our window of tolerance is when we are physiologically triggered, right? So stress kind of gets us to like the edges of the window of tolerance and then actual triggers. And, and like when we're talking about trauma, we mean getting outside the window of tolerance for an ongoing period of time. Stress kind of gets us to the edges and then we can come back down. When we get to the outside of the window of tolerance, it's really hard for us to communicate properly. Sometimes people will go nonverbal. That's where we might experience like panic attacks and the body shutting down in certain ways. Or, you know, you might have been in an argument with someone where you actually had the sensation in your body that you wanted to like bolt and leave the room or like get out of the house. That's your flight response, actually trying to get you away from a situation where your body feels threatened. All of those kinds of things that feel like extreme reactions in the body are outside the window of tolerance. So when I'm talking about pleasure, like what I said earlier about it kind of resourcing us for the challenging stuff, I'm talking about us being able to stay in that window of tolerance, in that space of optimal functioning so that we can be communicating in the ways that are effective and connected in the ways that we want to be. Yeah. In the book, you gave the analogy to um, a muscle and how, Mm -hmm. you know, the way that we increase the strength of a muscle is by putting it under stress and it breaking down and then kind of repairing and you kind of stopped there with the metaphor, but I really liked it as, as someone who's really into physiology and stuff like that was that thing of, you know, people in the sports or just sort of fitness world will talk about the concept of overtraining. And that's mm-hmm. that if you're constantly putting that muscle under stress, you know, like you're lifting really heavy weights every day, you're actually going to make that muscle weaker 
and it's not going to build itself back because it's constantly at that edge. And you talk about that in the book in terms of by always being right at the edges of this tolerance, that actually the window decreases because our body is trying to keep us safe. It's like, we're at this edge too much. I'm going to push you outside of it so you stop, right? So that you shut down or you get away or you escape or whatever it is. And that idea that we also don't want to just be comfortable all the time. We do want to grow and push ourselves, but it's finding that balance of you, you can't be in that state all the time or you're just not going to grow. But you also, if you're just in the middle of that comfort zone all the time, you're never growing and will probably feel kind of lackluster and, and bored and interestingly, a lack of pleasure if you just stay in that comfort zone all the time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, I was, I was bringing it up in the book in terms of talking about opening up an existing relationship or building a relationship that's going to be open in some capacity where if one or both of the partners are experiencing that as intensely stressful or even triggering, we need to look at the pacing of it. I, I see a lot of people in my work who feel like, okay, now I've made the decision to, to put this into practice in my life. I'm non-monogamous now. It's balls to the wall. We're dating everyone. And that doesn't actually allow for our nervous system to fully integrate our sense mm -hmm. of safety in what, our, what we're doing. So they're trying again and again and again to get more comfortable with it, but not taking the pauses or the, the sort of like downtime in between those experiences to fully integrate and digest them and orient to how safe they can feel with what has happened to kind of then like take that sense of safety into the next experience and have it hopefully be a little bit less challenging. I like that idea that you do it just a, a little bit at a time to kind of get your body to regulate. We're sort of going to be potentially pumping the brakes if somebody is having a challenging time with non-monogamy. We're kind of opening up the relationship as slowly as the partner who's potentially having a more challenging time in it needs or wants. But is there ever a time at which that might be holding the other person in the relationship back? And maybe you need to just sort of jump before you're ready, or you're holding the person back who really is excited about this and they're not able to express themselves in relationship as much as they want. Like, how can we sort of move forward without restricting each other's autonomy or their needs? Or how do we gauge whether or not like we're making any progress in feeling better about opening up in general? This question and the answer are kind of so multifaceted for me. And and this is where I have some contention with some of the stuff, like the, I don't know, I guess like more traditional line of thinking around non-monogamy that I felt like I was encountering a lot when I was first starting was kind of along those lines of like you'd figure out your insecurities you deal with your jealousy but like you do not impede upon your partner's autonomy and there's a couple pieces for me where i think about non-monogamy very much more in terms of like ecosystems and it feels easier for me to say can we go a little bit slower if we're thinking about this as a whole ecosystem so what does that mean to you so like I feel like some of the the pushback around asking to go slow is often like, OK, well, that means you're asking another partner to slow down or it's not taking into consideration how 
a partner outside of that couple, like the other partner that someone might be dating, how they would feel about it. And there's a communication piece with any like external partners. And this is my ideal. This is my lofty ideal is that we're all in non-monogamous ecosystems where when someone hears that a partner is really struggling with something, there's empathy and compassion around, you know, if that means that we need to slow down a little bit in some way, as long as we can define those terms and agree upon those terms, we're all, as kind of our default, we're on board with that, right? Where we get into some challenge around that is actually like in the nitty gritty, can we get everyone to agree to the terms? And I think that's kind of what the question is is actually more about is like, what if all the expressions of that are actually asking people to give up the things that they want or not even pursue mm. the things they want in the first place, right? So for me, it's actually about what is that negotiation of the terms? And it's it feels important to also name like the other skill set we need around that is forgiveness and repair and understanding that to make these kinds of transitions from monogamy to non-monogamy, we're going to make mistakes. We're probably going to hurt each other. There are going to be miscommunications. And can we set the intention to not take that personally, but to say like, we're playing with our edges here. That is what happens in this transition. We're going to bump into some boundaries that we don't know exist until we've hit them. And that's going to probably be painful and, and a little bit messy. And can we kind of go in with eyes wide open about that and understand that no one's doing it from a place of malintent and trust each other in that so that when those things happen, we're orienting to how do we reconnect? How do we come back to the feeling that we care about each other? But again, to actually answer the question a little more directly, I think what's really important to me in navigating those conversations is that people have a level of self-awareness where they're only making agreements that they can actually commit to. So the person who's maybe asking for slowness, asking in very specific terms what that means for them, also agreeing to points where we revisit and assess and get clear about what are the what is it that we're assessing? Like what are our metrics for are we making progress? Are we feeling better? I mean, all of it gets very specific, right? So making specific requests for what the structure is, making specific dates that we're going to check in, making specifics about what's the assessment, how are we trying to measure this? And then the person who maybe is on the other side who's being asked to slow down a little bit, they need to, to really only be agreeing to those things or negotiating around those things if they actually can give in that way. And that's where I see really a lot of like trickiness around this, where I see couples trying to navigate that and someone agreeing to it, but then constantly saying, you're holding me back, right? Or constantly bringing it back to, well, I wish I had more freedom to go do X, Y, and Z, but because of where you're at psychologically or emotionally, I'm I'm focused on you. And it's like, well, it, it's not it's not really that supportive or caring if you're making me feel bad about it. Right. And then, yeah, it happens on the other side as well. That thing of, oh, yeah, I, I agree to this. And then it's constantly the story about, look at what you're putting me through because you want to do this thing and I don't. Right. So both sides. Yeah. It's like finding that 
balance and also I think sometimes being honest about mm-hmm. what actually is kind of a core value or those like real significant needs or wants. And that might end up meaning this relationship isn't one that's compatible. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to mean that you don't love each other a lot or think each other are great, but this just might not be a relationship you can do. And I think that's another hard thing that people, if you come into that thinking that's not an option, I think it can actually kind of get in the way of being honest and being clear about what it is that you need. A thousand percent. I mean, the the other thing on my list here is like keeping the option to break up on the table. If like if you can't agree to that really genuinely, if it's not within your capacity, then thinking about other options for what that means. Yeah, I just wanted to point out you talk about this later in the book as well regarding a story that happened to you and your partner that gets pretty sexy, I will add. So you'll have to go check it out in the book where the two of you kind of vaguely talked about something and then it ended up becoming sort of a fight because you would thought one thing and your partner thought the other and neither of you got really granular in terms of like, no, this is what I mean and this is what I want. It was just sort of an amorphous request that neither of you were able to fulfill or talk about like, this is actually what I wanted from this encounter that you're having with this other person or not. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I appreciate that you talked about that because so often we do it all over the place in relationships. We just sort of say something as like a preference, but it's not actually specific in terms of, no, I really would prefer it if you didn't do that thing. And so getting getting really granular in those agreements, you get into that, which which I really appreciated. And I think there's also kind of back to that question of like, affecting someone else's autonomy, stating our own preferences is not affecting someone else's autonomy, right? Like, I want to actually be really clear about that. Saying I would prefer if you didn't X, Y, and Z is not me making them do anything. It's saying my own preferences. And then we get to negotiate, are we going to make agreements around that? Or is that just my preference? And they're still going to operate however they need to that's in alignment for them, right? Like I can have preferences of what my partners will and won't do, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those are deal breakers for us being in relationship. I think that that right there, I, I agree. And also I think that's a place that most people are not when it comes to their relationships uh, in that, terms of... That's true. <laughs> right? One partner expressing expressing a preference usually means, no, you have to do this thing. Or at least that's yeah. how we're taught to interpret that. So yeah, I think that is a cool, lofty ideal. But but boy, there's, there's a ways to go to get there. Yeah, know? there's... Well, and I think, you know, it's the difference between expressing a preference and making a specific request, right? If I mm-hmm. say, like, I would prefer if you didn't do this thing, I... I'm not actually saying like, please don't do this. And and I think right. that's where I get into like, we want to be specific. We want to be measurable as much as possible. Relationships yeah. are more complicated than what we can. We can't make all the aspects measurable, but if we can set ourselves up with some of those frameworks, it can give us a good structure for working through what can be really challenging. Yeah. And that, that revisiting step, I mean, the, the reason why yeah. we talk about our radar framework all the time is that it's ongoing. It gives you that yeah. chance to check back in. And you kind of mentioned the importance of that. It's not just like we decide it once and now it's done. 
or I'd stated mm-hmm. this preference once and now I expect you to always know that that's what I want because that could change, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, that that importance of checking back in is so key. And I think with with both of what we're talking about here, the those agreements around going as slow as the slowest person needs and and the radar model that you use, what's really important is everyone being clear on what the agreements are. I talk to people all the time who don't actually know what the agreements are in their relationships because they've had they've been having conversations where they feel like they're building intimacy and getting to know each other and hearing each other's desires and feelings and and all this really wonderful connective stuff, but they're not getting concrete in what the agreements are. And I think that's really, really, really important. You you need to actually be able to articulate them for you to have a supportive experience in non-monogamy. And I think I would say that goes back to what we talked about before, that I think that's especially true when you're first figuring out this transition together. Mm-hmm. That definitely my experience and, and the experience I've, I've found talking to a lot of people is that over time, as you get more comfortable with it yourself or with your partner, you'll have fewer and fewer of those. Mm-hmm. But that, yeah, starting out, it is kind of like, because everything's so unknown, I don't know how I'm going to feel about something. It's like this constant needing to check back in and yeah. reevaluate because you don't know, right? You're you're venturing into this new territory. So you want to stop more often and redraw the lines on your map instead of just being like, yep, we drew this up before we got to this land. But let's just go. <laughs> this, is, this is the map we have. We can't change it. Let's go. Yeah, absolutely. It Again, it goes back to that, like, building trust in the new way of operating mm-hmm. and building mm-hmm. that security really with yourself to to be in non-monogamous exploration. So to close out this episode, I want to get back to the question that we did not get to before, which is, <laughs> what is the polyamory paradox? The title mm-hmm. of the book, what, what is that actually referring to? It's referring to two things, actually, because I have ADHD and can never pick anything. One is the sort of paradoxical sense of as we start to explore relationships with multiple people, that deepening our sense of intimacy with others. So like in the example of opening a primary partnership, exploring relationships with other people can often deepen the sense of intimacy in the primary partnership. Whereas we think intimacy often has to be cultivated by focusing on that particular relationship, moving into relationship outside of that can actually strengthen and deepen it. But the thing that I focus on more in the book, the the paradox that that the book is really meant to support more is the paradox of what I was describing earlier of oh I really identify with this. I am polyamorous and the experience in my body is that maybe p- being polyamorous is actually going to make me explode. I think Clementine Morgan actually has a, a perfect quote around this of like, I want this, but I'm going to die or I feel like I'm going to die. Like I really am drawn to this thing, but it is also entirely too much in my body. Irene, this has been really great. I got the feeling as I was reading the book that there's just like so many different things to talk about in this space. And it's so fantastic to meet and read different resources regarding non-monogamy just because it's such a vast, huge topic. And I found myself over and over again as I was reading it, 
being like, yeah, I hadn't thought of that before. And, you know, we've been steeped in this for 10 years. And yet there are still times and there are still things that I can read where I go, oh, I have never thought of that thing in that way before. So thank you for your contribution to this space as well. Oh, thank you. I I take that as a huge compliment. Where can people find more of you and your work and where can they get the polyamory paradox? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, my website is irenemorning.com, I-R-E-N-E-M-O-R-N-I-N-G. And I am also on Instagram as irene underscore morning. Those are the easiest online places to track me down. The book is available on my website, but also through Amazon. Excellent. Great. Well, thank you so much. And to you, our listeners out there, we have a question for you that we're posting on our Instagram stories, which is, what is one of your favorite types of non-sexual pleasure? I love this idea of exploring what does pleasure mean outside of just that. Really excited to hear what everyone says. And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners about this episode is in the episode discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can post about it in our private Facebook group. You can get access to both of these by joining our exclusive community on patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, threads, wherever wherever you want to do it. Multiamory is created and produced by Emily Matlack, Dedeker Winston, and me, Jace Lindgren. Our production assistants are Rachel Schenewerk and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>